Welcome to Making Coffee, a behind-the-scenes look at what goes into making one of the world's favorite beverages. I'm your host, Lucia Solis, a former winemaker turned coffee processing specialist. Thanks for joining this week's episode. Hey guys, it's been a while since I sat in front of the microphone and brought you guys a new episode. And well, you might think it's because I've been having a laid-back summer, but no, it's been quite busy since the last episode I released in July. Um, I've been able to realize a longtime dream of holding my own fermentation workshops. So for one week, we gather in Colombia and process coffee together and nerd out about fermentations. We've had two events so far, one in July and another one in September. I call the event the fermentation training camp because, yes, we spend a lot of the week going over microbiology and different types of fermentation, and it's a combination of hands-on training and also uh, classroom style, you know, presentations and all that, you know, very practical uh, information. But the camp element was really important to me. This idea of sitting by the campfire every single night after dinner and processing the day's information and also learning from each other. Something that's been really important to me in this coffee journey is feeling really uncomfortable as a, a bottleneck, feeling like, you know, I am the one who is providing the information and people are just receiving it. So this fermentation camp allows me to gather a bunch of really cool people and really learn from each other and really maximize the, the information exchange. So that part is really, really cool. And I created this event to serve coffee producers, to share with them how to control their fermentations and improve quality of their coffee. But the event has also attracted coffee researchers, importers, exporters, roasters, cafe owners, and coffee enthusiasts. The events are bilingual, English and Spanish, and one Swiss attendee, Salut Christian, made me bust out my French for part of it. That was very exhausting to switch between the three languages, but we made it work. So if you want to deepen your knowledge of coffee processing and spend a week in Colombia with super cool coffee people, we just opened spots for the third camp in December. You can go to my website for more information and to purchase tickets. And the website is lucia.coffee. That's L-U-X-I-A dot C-O-F-F-E-E. Lucia.coffee. And you don't need to know anything about fermentation to attend. All levels are welcome and all areas of the coffee industry are also welcome. I'm going to have early bird pricing available through the month of October and then prices go up starting November. All right. That's enough of the business. Moving on to today's episode. The title of this episode is Coffee Has a Plastic Bag Problem, which is a phrase that came to me while I was checking email and reading my New York Times newsletter. This is the first time in, what, 45 episodes that the title of an episode came first. The typical creative process involves a few years of being annoyed by an aspect of the coffee industry, then a few weeks of brooding and mulling it over, and then when the pressure builds enough, I am able to scribble some thoughts on my iPad that eventually translate into a Google document. I spend a long time looking at that Google document, I add to it, I delete things, I write out more thoughts, and eventually there is an episode that forms. Then we record it. And then I spend even longer trying to capture the essence in a title. As those of you who have been with me for a while know, this is a podcast full of tangents and side stories and metaphors, and many times I don't know what the point is until it's all out of my head. But not this week. This week, the title came first. Coffee has a plastic bag problem. To be clear, 
I don't mean to talk about coffee packaging. This is not an episode about roasted coffee bags. Although, I do wish coffee shops would stop selling me coffee in metal tins. I find it really obnoxious for traveling, they're very bulky, and it has to be massively wasteful. Because it's not even a pseudo-attempt at reducing waste. It's not like there's a program to bring back the empty tins to the store and get a refill to reduce single-use packaging. It really seems to be just about making the packaging look cooler and more substantial. So, I don't know. It's just something that I've been finding in a lot of the coffee shops that I'm visiting lately. I go in and want to buy some coffee and all the packaging they have is a metal tin. And I like to pack light, so it's very annoying to fit that on my carry-on. But anyway, this is not an episode about coffee packaging or the plastic bags used for roasted coffee. The plastic bags I'm talking about are the thin, single-use plastic grocery bags. You know, the kind that you have balled up in your kitchen cabinet somewhere. I'm talking about plastic grocery bags today. Essentially, this is an episode about the unintended consequences behind good intentions. I think in specialty coffee, when we talk about coffee processing, we think we are moving quickly in the direction of progress. But if we take a minute to pause and examine what we are doing, we would realize that we are at best spinning in place and at worst moving backwards. But we are getting ahead of ourselves. Let me first tell you about the New York Times. Part of the culture of living in the United States includes a sense of political awareness. If you're not keeping up with what's going on in cultural events and the world, then it sort of feels like you're not doing your duty as a good citizen. And I want to be a good citizen, but I get easily overwhelmed with information. I often feel torn between the good feeling of being an informed person and the terrible feeling that comes with knowing how awful people can be to each other. When Nick and I moved to Colombia, I knew I would be removing myself from a lot of political noise. However, I still wanted a source to keep updated with world events. So instead of reading random internet articles that people sent me, I signed up for a news subscription. I feel like paying for news has really improved the quality of my information. And I realize this sounds like an ad for the New York Times, but as you guys know, this podcast is completely listener-supported, so I'm just sharing my enthusiasm for good journalism. I appreciate the variety of articles I get from the New York Times. I find myself reading about things I wouldn't naturally seek out. For example, this article about plastic grocery bags. I believe this article is a near-perfect metaphor for how the specialty coffee industry is approaching specialty processing. The article starts with the news that the state of New Jersey has banned single-use plastic bags. It was written September 1st, and it's by Claire Toniscoder. Claire says that it's a well-intentioned law that seeks to cut down waste and single-use plastics. This is an interesting topic to bring up now because I felt the zero-waste movement was really picking up steam in the U.S., and then it took a big hit during the pandemic when we knew almost nothing about how the virus spread and everything came in extra single-use packaging. We took a right turn away from reusable and doubled down on disposable. Bringing our own refillable mug to coffee shops was no longer an option. For safety, the stores had to control the packaging. Now, over two years later, we know much more about how the virus spreads, and I'm noticing a return to reducing single-use plastics. Anyway, let's go back to Claire's article on New Jersey. She says that while many states have banned single-use plastics, New Jersey is the only one that has also banned paper bags for groceries. I found it interesting that New Jersey also banned paper bags because initially they seemed like a better option. But an article from Brad Plummer in 2019 titled Paper or Plastic speaks to the difference in the bags more clearly. I'm 
I'm sure none of us need to be convinced that single-use plastic bags made from fossil fuels that take many lifetimes to degrade are bad for the environment. Much of this information is obvious, but sometimes it helps to review the obvious. For many of us, plastic refusing to degrade in a landfill is a bad image. However, Brad Plummer points out that this is the best case scenario, a plastic bag in a landfill. But what has made plastic bags a particular target, a poster boy for pollution, is that they are so flimsy, so light, that many of them don't end up in the landfill. Instead, they get swept away in the wind and end up stuck flapping in the tree branches or polluting waterways and oceans. Does anyone remember the scene of the dancing plastic bag in the movie American Beauty? No? Anyone? Well, it's from 1999, so you are forgiven and it makes me feel kind of old. But paper bags are sometimes seen as an eco-friendly alternative because they are recyclable and made from trees, a renewable resource. Paper bags are seductive. However, they take significantly more energy to produce. More energy means emitting more greenhouse gases. More gases contribute to global warming. So while you won't find paper bags filling the stomachs of whales and polluting the ocean, their higher carbon footprint is warming our oceans and reducing habitats and contributing to extinction anyway. In 2011, Britain's Environmental Agency conducted a life cycle assessment of various bag options. They looked at every step of the production process and concluded that you would have to reuse a paper bag three times to equal the impact of a single-use plastic bag. From a carbon emissions point of view, a plastic bag has a lower impact than paper because of how we use it. Paper could be better if every time you went to the store, you got a paper bag and then you saved them and the next time you went to the store, you brought those same bags with you and only used those bags and then you took them home, folded them, kept them nice, and then the third time you went out to the grocery store, you only took out those bags. If you did that, then you'd have about the same damage as plastic bags. But hardly anybody shops like that. Hardly anyone keeps the paper bags for multiple uses. They are used in the same way as single-use plastic. They are used once and then, more likely, put in the trash or perhaps maybe the recycling bin or a compost bin, but that is so, so rare. Those are not our habits. The problem is not the material, it's our habits of consumption. Even considering recycling and composting, these actions barely make a dent on the broader analysis. Not to mention how few cities have functioning recycling programs or how often the dyes used in printing are not biodegradable. I'm not here to convince you that plastic bags are good or better or even okay. We all agree that single-use plastic bags are bad for our oceans and wildlife. Instead, I want to talk about our consumer habits and our assumptions. We assumed that paper was better than plastic. Until you find out how much more energy it takes to make a paper bag and how unlikely it is that bag is reused or recycled. Maybe you feel good about using paper bags and avoiding plastic, but are you really doing anything positive for our oceans? Or do you just feel good in your ignorance? I felt good in my ignorance for a long time. I used to feel impressed when states had plastic bag bans. I thought it was really cool and progressive. Actually, I was most impressed by Rwanda. In my 2018 visit, I learned that the country has a ban on plastics. Like, the whole country. Rwanda has had a ban on plastics since 2008. 14 years ago, the whole country was tackling plastic bags. If you go to the tourism website, visitrwanda.com, they have a warning for visitors. Their website says, Please refrain from bringing plastic bags to Rwanda. Banned by law since 2008, any plastic bags in your luggage will be confiscated at the airport or other point of entry. As a country, we strive to protect, 
safeguard, and promote the environment, a matter which is written into our Constitution and carefully observed by our citizens, who all participate in a community service called Umuganda on the last Saturday of every month. We respectfully request that all visitors help us keep Rwanda the cleanest country in Africa and dispose of all litter responsibly. I mean, come on, that is quite a message for a country to be giving people uh, that are coming to visit. And during my visit to Rwanda, I really found this to be true. The cleanliness of Kigali struck me immediately. It was an incredibly clean place. I didn't see any litter anywhere, and there were no street dogs. When you travel to a coffee-producing country, especially in Latin America, the trash and street dogs are part of the fabric. But Rwanda was different. I felt like I was walking around Japan. I also felt incredibly safe as a young woman walking around alone in a new city. Rwanda felt kind of like a magical coffee fairyland. Anyway, I still think Rwanda is making real progress in this respect, but if Rwanda has a secret plastic trash problem, let me know. I didn't spend that much time there, I'm just reporting what I saw and felt. But let's get back to America. What I found especially interesting is that while plastic bags create dreadful waste, they are only about 12% of the total plastic waste. Lawmakers spend time writing bans and campaign on reducing plastics. Plastic bags get a lot of airtime, even though they make up a small percentage of America's plastic problem. They make up 12% of the problem, but they are highly visible, so that's 90% of what we see. Which brings us to another common human habit, which is to focus where it's easiest, where it's most obvious, but not necessarily the most helpful. This makes me sad because a plastic bag problem is hard to solve. And even if we could find a perfect solution, it would be a perfect solution for a 12% problem. But this depressing revelation is just a tangent. It's not the main upsetting thing I want to share with you today. Let's get back to Claire's piece on New Jersey's ban. Because New Jersey went the extra step of banning plastic and paper bags for grocery. Right, okay, so single-use plastics are bad, and the typical solution is to replace it with paper. And now we know paper bags use more energy, and they're, more, they're just more energy-intensive to produce, so it doesn't really get to the heart of the problem. So New Jersey said they will ban both. Most people think that paper is better than plastic, so they just ban the plastic, and they don't really make much progress because paper can have a heavier burden since, again, it takes more energy to produce. So by banning both, it seems like New Jersey is tackling the problem. But are they? Because people still use bags. And if plastic and paper are not available, then what is the third option? The third option is reusable bags, usually cloth or cotton or really heavy-duty plastic. The piece says, Many people who rely on grocery delivery and curbside pickup services, their orders now come in heavy-duty reusable shopping bags, lots and lots of them, week after week. Emily Guanyu, 22, a gig worker in Roselle Park, who provides shopping services for people through Instacart, said she was surprised when she learned the delivery company had no special plans for accommodating the ban. They pretty much said, quote, Okay, do exactly what you're doing, but with reusable bags, she said. So, while New Jersey's well-intentioned law seeks to cut down on waste and single-use plastics, it didn't account for people's behaviors. Most of us don't remember to bring our reusable bags as often as we would like. But with the new habit of grocery deliveries, that's not even an option. You get new bags every time. New, heavy-duty, reusable cloth bags that are only used once. 
and growing cotton requires a fair bit of energy, land, fertilizer, and pesticides, which can have all sorts of environmental effects, from greenhouse gas emissions to nitrogen pollution and waterways. The study found that an avid shopper would have to reuse his or her cotton bag 131 times before it had a smaller global warming impact than a lightweight plastic bag used only once. 131 times is a lot of times to remember to take your bag with you. But then I read an article by Gracie Cook, published August 24, 2021, titled The Cotton Tote Crisis. In the article, she wrote, An organic tote needs to be used 20,000 times to offset its overall impact of production, according to a 2018 study by the Ministry of Environment and Food of Denmark. That equates to daily use for 54 years for just one bag. Cotton is so water-intensive, said Travis Wagner, an environmental science professor at the University of Maine. It's also associated with forced labor thanks to the revelations about the treatment of Uyghurs in China, which produces 20% of the world's cotton and supplies most Western fashion brands. And figuring out how to dispose of a tote in an environmentally low-impact way is not nearly as simple as people think. So that's what the article said, and I couldn't believe the 20,000 number. So I downloaded the 128-page document. It's linked in the show notes if you want to read it too. And there it was on page 85 of the 128-page document. The number of times an organic cotton tote would need to be reused to offset its making is 131, according to one report, and 150, according to the Danish report. But it's pretty close to each other. So 131, 150, okay. But that's just the making of them. If we then are to account for its entire life cycle, including disposal, that's where the number jumps to 20,000 uses. You can't, for example, just put a tote in the compost bin. Maxine Bedat, a director at the New Stanford Institute, a nonprofit focused on fashion and sustainability, said she has yet to find a municipality compost that will accept textiles. And only 15% of the 30 million tons of cotton produced every year actually makes its way to textile depositories. Even when a tote does make it to a treatment plant, most dyes used to print logos are PVC-based and thus not recyclable. They're extremely difficult to break down chemically, said Christopher Stunev, the co-founder of Evernew, a Seattle-based textile recycling firm. Banning plastic bags is a good example of unintended consequences. We are trying to make positive choices, but few of us understand the full landscape. That's not to say cotton is worse than plastic, or that the two should even be compared. While cotton can use pesticides, if it's not organically grown, and has dried up rivers from water consumption, lightweight plastic bags use greenhouse gas-emitting fossil fuels, never biodegrade, and can clog up the oceans. The problem is not that we have yet to find the best material for our bags. The bigger problem, the thing we need to move upstream and tackle, is our shopping habits and excess packaging in the first place. Okay, So are you with me so far? Because now is where we see how specialty coffee has a plastic bag problem. What I learned from the plastic bag ban is that when faced with a problem, our instincts as humans is to make a new thing, to create more instead of changing behavior or changing the culture. So how are we doing this with coffee? Well, there probably have to be several ways, but I will share the one that relates to my job, coffee processing. Longtime listeners have heard me mention this before. I make my living from promoting processing practices and singing the praises of fermentation, but I also try to spend time sharing the limitations of processing. I often get the sense that most people think the way to solve the coffee price crisis and wage inequality 
is that coffee producers need to make better coffee. I think the thinking goes that if they make better coffee, then obviously we will pay them more for it. This logic has embedded in it that coffee prices are fair. That producers don't get paid living wages for their coffee because they have not been making good coffee. That they have been making commodity coffee. But let's set aside the veracity of this claim. This is not a podcast about coffee economics. I am not qualified to talk about coffee prices. For now, let's stick with processing. Many of us believe that the way to help coffee producers is to improve processing. The trend the last six years has been to focus on fermentation and extended processing and move back towards naturals and honey process. So this is in direct opposition of the, the traditional you know, point of view, the traditional model for pr- producers was process as quickly as possible and avoid defects and sort of just get out of the way. It's, you know, the the shortest time between sherry to green coffee. And now we've gone in the opposite direction and we're saying like, no, we're going to spend a lot more time in fermentation. We're going to spend a lot more time with the coffee at the mill. And with the success of a few processes came the deluge of different methods. The lactic, acetic, carbonic maceration, koji, thermoshock, frozen cherry, hydro honey, etc, etc, etc. Producers ask me what they should be doing when a client asks them for an anaerobic coffee. And buyers and roasters ask me what producers mean when they label a coffee an anaerobic process. Often, neither side is really sure what they are asking or what they are making. And I agree, it can be overwhelming and confusing. Whenever I get a request for a presentation or an article, the most common request is, can I include a glossary or a dictionary of processing? People ask me to define lactic, acetic, double fermentation, carbonic maceration, thermoshock. For the last several years, when faced with this request, I do my best to ignore it or turn it down. However, I've never really talked about why. This is top of mind now because I was recently asked again by a roaster to help him develop this tool. And I get it. It is a well-meaning effort. He wants to provide a service. He wants to disambiguate these terms. He wants to provide clarity. He wants to help. But does it really help? Or a better question is, who would this tool help most? Who benefits from this thing existing? In addition to those questions, there are three questions I like to ask myself as often as I can remember to ask them. The first one is, does it need to be said? Does it need to be said now? And does it need to be said by you right now? With the topic of a processing glossary, I asked myself these questions. One, does it need to be said? Often, this is enough to stop me from saying anything. Often, silence is best. But maybe it is important and maybe it does need to be said. People are confused and they want a guide. So then I moved to question two. Does this need to be said right now? On this point, I'm not so convinced. I don't know that we need a processing glossary right now. I think we need to gather more information first. Many of these processes are still being developed. It's early stages. It's the Wild West. Trying to define them is like trying to catch a moving target. I think it's too early to pin it down and force some rules. There's too much creativity and freedom of expression that still needs to, I don't know, work its way out of people's systems. I don't think it's a problem that a yellow or a red or a black honey is arbitrary. It's the creative expression of the producer. Sure, maybe it's confusing for a buyer, and we can't standardize a lactic fermentation from Costa Rica to one in Peru, but so what? Is alleviating your discomfort over not knowing a process more important than a producer's creativity? 
Is your comfort as a coffee consumer more important than the creative expression of the producer who defines thermoshock in their own way? Maybe a coffee processing glossary is an important tool to have, but I'm not convinced that it needs to exist right now, right this minute. But there's still a third important question left. Question three, does it need to be said by you? Just because it's important doesn't mean you are the best vehicle to deliver the advice or message or information. And if you pass this test, that it's important information, and that it needs to be said, and that it needs to be said now, do you truly believe you are the most qualified person to deliver the information? I touched on this theme in a personal conversation with James Harper, producer of Adventures in Coffee, and his own series, History of Coffee. I've already said how much I enjoyed and learned from his coffee history series, which he did with a professional historian. But he shared with me that he struggled a bit because did the world really need another two white European men teaching us history? Is this the narrative that needs more airtime? Honestly, maybe not. And I don't want to discourage anyone from making anything. If you want to make a thing, who am I to stop you? I love that people want to make things. But I do believe more of us, especially in the coffee industry, need to ask ourselves these series of questions. Does this thing need to exist? And if it does, am I really the best person to make it? I make my living working with coffee producers to process their coffee. I have 15 years of processing experience and eight of those years I've been working with coffee. And I do not believe that I am the most qualified person to make a coffee processing glossary. So if not me, then who? Who should be making this glossary? Well, I believe it should be a coffee producer, someone who makes a living producing coffee. But who is most likely to make this glossary? Unfortunately, it's a coffee buyer. A coffee buyer creating a glossary of processing terms. Does this need to exist? Yes, it would be great if this existed. I would like this tool to exist too, but does it need to be made by a coffee buyer? What does it mean that it's made by a coffee buyer? What is the result? The result that I see the part that makes me so uncomfortable and why I refuse to participate in making a glossary is because I felt like it masquerades as new and innovative, but instead reinforces the same old power dynamic that got us into this coffee price crisis. There is an authority that comes with defining terms. You define what is correct and what is incorrect. Do we need another tool from a coffee buyer telling producers the right way to do something, and therefore the wrong way to do something, and how they should not do something? This defining of terms triggers the same irritation I feel when I hear roasters and baristas wanting to regulate what processes can be used in competitions. If you don't own a farm and make a living with the weather, why do you think you are the most qualified to define what a producer is allowed to do with their cherries? Why are we consumers and buyers so concerned with regulating and defining producers when we are not them? We are not producers. Coffee producers are a population who face a lot of risk. They absorb the risk of growing a crop in a world with a changing climate and highly volatile prices. They are processing their coffee in many ways. Imagine being them and learning that the processing authority is coming from the buying side of the industry, from the part of the industry that doesn't experience the risk that producers face. Suddenly, this well-meaning tool feels like more of the same, more of the same power imbalance and power inequity. How can we believe we are moving forward moving into a future where producers have more agency, when the rules and regulations, when the authority is still coming from the buyers? What kind of agency can producers expect to have when they are still not leading the conversation, when most of the time they don't even have a seat at the table? 
And another thing that bothers me is that this tool is more easily distributed among other buyers, not producers. I don't see this tool being used to help producers learn new ways to process coffee. I see it used among buyers to further widen the information gap between the two sides. We continue to have more educated and discerning buyers creating the standards and coffee producers lagging further and further behind. How can we pat ourselves on our back and think we are doing a good job? We are New Jersey. We have banned plastic and paper bags, but our habits have not changed. We still have a single-use culture, even if we change the material from plastic to cloth. And in coffee, we have embraced processing, but our habits towards producers have not changed. Our habits are to remain in power, even if we change the material from commodity to specialty coffee. So does this tool need to exist? I think a well-meaning tool created in this way is worse than it not existing. And if you disagree, I would like to hear about it during office hours in the live discussion that I do every other week on Discord for Patreon members. Change my mind. What am I missing? Yes, I believe in standards, and I also believe that a common language can help us all better understand each other. You guys know I am a big fan of language, and I believe that the coffee industry needs better vocabulary. I also think it's important for producers to share some broad strokes of how the coffee is processed and dried to give roasters the information they need to execute the best roast. Some extended fermentations can make the coffee more porous and behave differently than a traditional washed coffee. But coffee porosity research is still in its early days. I do want us to work together more on how these different processing methods change the coffee structure and make them behave differently when roasting. But this research is just beginning. We can't squeeze the toothpaste back in the tube. The information exists now. I'm just wondering how we will all use it. Try asking yourself the three questions and see if your behavior changes. Does it need to be said? Does it need to be said now? And does it need to be said now by you? And, well, this is a little bit of a short episode for us traditionally, but that's all I have for you now. Um, as a reminder, tickets are on sale for the fermentation camp with me in Colombia. I think it's a really good opportunity if you've been looking to spend some time in a coffee-producing country and up-level your level of information and your level of involvement in coffee. I'm so glad to be back with you guys. I will not take as long of a break again. <laughs> I have a lot of ideas for podcasts that are brewing. So yeah, I think it's kind of funny that I didn't think that I, I don't think that I am the best person to make a coffee glossary, but I do believe that it needs to be said, that it needs to be said now, that it needs to be said now by me, that I am anti-glossary for the moment. And okay, time to wrap it up. I want to thank the patrons who make it possible for me to carve out time to make these episodes and to have them available for free to everybody else. Patrons also have access to the Discord live discussions, which is like a podcast after the podcast that we get to make together. And if you join, you don't just get to talk to me, you get to talk to other awesome podcast listeners. If you enjoy listening and get value out of these episodes, please share with a friend who loves coffee or wine. And for episode updates, consider subscribing to my free and infrequent newsletter at lucia.coffee. Lucia is L-U-X-I-A. Thanks for listening, and remember, life's too short to drink bad coffee.